0: Hello and welcome to the Carmichael podcast series. So as not know Carmichael, we provide supporting guidance to charities and nonprofits in running their organisations and with complying with good governance practice. In this series of podcasts, we'll be asking questions, mainly governance related and hopefully providing some answers to those big issues that nonprofits are grappling with. I'm Dimitro Corbui, I'm the chief executive of Carmichael and joining me today is our training manager, Derek O'Reilly. Okay, Derek, today we, we've decided to take on this big issue of the Governance Code, and particularly the Charities Governance Code. But before we dive into the, the Charities Governance Code, Carmichael has been long involved with the whole area of Governance Codes. Maybe you might talk us a bit about just our involvement and the, the history of the Governance Codes in Ireland yes, for yes, Charities.
1: Yes, it goes back a good few years, Dermot. I'm trying to remember how many years, I'm guessing around 10 years initially there was an initiative to set up a voluntary governance code for community voluntary and charitable organisations in Ireland. Carmichael was involved in, at the very beginning and at the roundtable discussions about what that might look like. So a number of us in Carmichael got involved straight away. We helped to develop a voluntary code which was used and quite successfully used for a good number of years by a lot of community voluntary and charitable organisations. Then the charities regulator was set up and and in, uh, ultimately, one of the ideas that the regulator came up with was rather than having a voluntary code, the regulator would actually have a mandatory code which would apply to all charities. Now, in fact, the voluntary code applied to both charities and non-charitable organizations in the social sector so the code ultimately morphed into a code for sports organisations, which is an ongoing process. But in the meantime, a lot of thinking has been galvanised in the last uh, in the last year due to the regulator saying, "Here's a code very similar to the voluntary code, but now uh, if you are a registered charity, you must be compliant with the code." And the challenge now for a lot of charities is to just get their heads around it and make sure that they're compliant within the required timeframe
0: it is as you say different from the voluntary code in terms of that the charity regulator is going to ask charities that are regulated by the regulator to be compliant with the code so before we dive into sort of how you might go about that process and making sure that you're compliant you might just give us an idea what does a code cover what does a charity's governance code cover if i'm coming to this fresh if I had no real involvement with the voluntary code but now this is a this is going to be a required code what do I need to know about the Charities governance code at, at, at a high level
1: yep uh, well in broad brushstrokes I suppose there are six principles and the principles are as follows. One of the first one and the one that's I suppose most important from the regulator's point of view is advancing charitable purpose. So you must demonstrate that you're actually advancing the charitable purpose that you were set up to deal with. So I think that's an important one, and it's one that the regulator introduced on top of what was in the original voluntary code. The other ones very briefly are behaving with integrity, leading people, exercising control working effectively and being accountable and transparent and then under underneath each of those principles there's a whole series of standards that need to be met and that's where the the devil is in the detail
0: and a lot of these things when you have the principles that they they are sort of you look at them and say yes they those make sense can you talk a bit about between the Core, the standard, and the additional standards. Mm. What's 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 the difference between th- those?
1: Yes, there are core standards for each of those principles. So when you drill down from each of those headings, those broad headings, you'll see there's a number of core standards that apply to all charities. So there's a number of things you need to to demonstrate by way of complying with each of those. But there are also what are referred to as additional standards, and those would be for what are referred to as more complex organisations. So all organisations would need to look at the core standards, be they very small or very large organisations, and then the more complex organisations would need to look at additional standards as well. Complex doesn't necessarily mean a larger organisation. Complexity is around the nature of the work of the organisation. So if, for example, an organisation is involved in overseas aid, or it's involved with dealing with vulnerable service users, they may well fall into the category of a more complex organization even though they're a very small organization. It's up to each organization to decide if they are a more complex organization or not I think the assumption has been that the regulator would actually decide on that on, be, on behalf of your organisation. That's not the case. The regulator is waiting for the trustees of the organisation to make that decision on their level of complexity.
0: I, I, I that's a very important point. You know, in the old voluntary code, or the, the you had type A, type B and type C organisations. and Type C was probably the easiest one to, to say whether it was a type A. A lot of organisations struggled whether they were a B or a C this is slightly different and as you say it's very very important that you do t- as an organization at charities think time are we a complex organization and, and and there are some guidance in 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 the code to help you come to that decision but it's important that you think about it and then you need to have a case to be able to argue your case of why you you've decided that you're not a complex or, you know, I, I don't think anybody will take any issue if you go say we are a complex and we've gone for the full, sta- all the standards. But if you decide that you're you only the core minimum standards apply to, you need to be able to rationalise that if somebody challenged you, if, if a funder asked you or if, if indeed the regulator asked you, on what basis for it. So it, it is an important one to look at. So it's, again, thinking if you're if you're a very small organisation that has very little money, maybe no staff, you probably are the core one, so I think core applies to are small. But the word complex is not just in terms of size and and, and, and turnover. It could be the nature of the work to do because it is it is one that we we come across where people who are a little bit unsure about what, which one to go to. I say, if in doubt, go complex, unless you're, you're genuinely a very very, very small organisation. So that has that that's one of the first decisions you're going to make. So. There are some dates around this process before we dive into the whole process, but what are the critical dates that, uh, if I'm a charity trustee, should be focusing in on?
1: Yes, well, this year, 2019, is the year to go through the code and to familiarise yourself with the code. The regulator has really set aside this year as the year to learn about the code, research it, and hopefully start the process of implementing the code. But they're really looking at 2020 as the year when uh, organisations would actually start to comply with the code and to actually implement it fully for their organisation. And the regulator has indicated that in 2021, they will be asking organisations to uh, report on compliance. And that means in your annual return to the regulator, there will be a tick box question and it will be asking organisations if they are compliant with the code or not. So organisations really should be aiming for 2021 to have full compliance in place. And I think
0: it's important that, you know, people, and I've heard it said that oh, we don't really have to worry about it till next year. And I think that's a tendency we can have. We push it on the long finger and wait until the deadline looms and said, oh my goodness what do I need to do now and may find yourself a bit short on time or it's rushed so what, what advice would you give to, to charities that, that, that are, haven't really started in terms of what kind of structure kind of process they should be putting in place yeah
1: yeah, I think I think definitely boards need to be thinking about it now. One of the dangers is they will ask a staff member or their manager to actually do it for them. I think that's a mistake. It's a process that belongs to the trustees of the organisation. The charities regulator is very clear on this. This is about good governance. It's not about good management. So it is the responsibility of the board to oversee and to sign off on compliance with this. It does take time. This isn't something that can be done at the stroke of a pen. So so boards do need to be stitching it into their conversations, and I would recommend that agendas of board meetings from now onwards should include some discussion on the process of compliance with the code. Yeah. I, and, I think.
0: Yeah, I think for those that are coming up to the the, the next board meeting, I would say to the company the secretary the secretary of the charity to put it on the agenda because even put it on the agenda and says okay. What is our plan what sort of, what are, what, what, when do we hope to be finished and what are the building blocks if, just that and then this is and we will report at every board meeting where we are against that plan because we've been through it here in Carmichael and you know, we, you know we're fortunate that we, we have a lot of experience in this whole area, but it did take quite a bit of time to to make sure that we, we were comfortable that we could be compliant with the code. So I would say to boards don't underestimate the effort. And I would totally concur that there is a tendency to delegate this down to a staff member to do. And it, 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 that's the, that's, you're getting off the wrong foot immediately in terms of this has to be owned by the board. They can get help and input from, from staff and volunteers, but it is ultimately the board needs to manage this process. So it, it is one of the critical things. You mentioned they're doing an even an, an initial sort of Five six bullets on the the, the sort of timeline for between this and in the twenty twenty. What sort of structure or process would you think makes sense, or how would I go about it? Because when you look at it first, it looks big and very daunting. Particularly if you haven't done any work, say, with the voluntary code previously, and this is you come to this new because now it is a requirement. What would, what would you say the, the good way to get started?
1: Yes, there, there are no easy magic ways of doing this. I think it, there is a bit of donkey work involved and I would really recommend that all trustees have a look at the actual code to go on to the Charities Regulators website and to read through the code and familiarise themselves with the with the six different principles and the different components in each of those principles. There's no getting away from that. I think that just has to be done. It may well be in, in your interest to have a person or persons who can champion the process and who can drive the process forward if it's kind of left to everybody collectively it may run out of steam so i think if there are one or two people on the board who feel they can take some responsibility for driving it forward then i think that would be worth doing but that doesn't mean those people take away the ultimate responsibility from the board the collective responsibility is still there There's a few other things to bear in mind. I think, obviously, there has to be a discussion on whether you are a more complex charity or not. So that, at least as an agenda item, would need to be put onto an agenda fairly soon so that whoever then is leading the process knows, Okay, well, these are the standards that we need to apply. And then having one or two people or even a subcommittee who can drive that process forward, hopefully will keep the momentum going. You will probably begin to see then timelines beginning to emerge You'll be able to see. Okay, well, some of these standards will be easier to rise to than others. So we'll be able to hopefully sign off on some of them fairly quickly, and then others might take more discussion I or the putting in just place just put of more. There, mm-hmm. That
0: is a good, very good point to bear in mind. When you look at the core standards and additional standards, and you map them out, and just look at them, uh, and when you print out the document. Uh, Initially, it's a bit daunting. You so, oh my mm-hmm. goodness, there's an awful lot of work here. But when you start going through them and even go a quick pass through them, you'll see that a lot of the stuff is already happening or, in, or, or is well advanced or, or it may not be to the full completion. But you, that you suddenly, if you go through that first pass and say, what have we got already in place? What are the things we don't have in place? And then what are the biggies that we need to, to, to prioritize? And as I said, a lot of these things is like how do you eat an elephant and you take it at a chunk at a time but I think first of the time is which chunk you start with first yes. yeah. and I think looking at it and doing the first pass of saying you're not in a vacuum this is the, the governance, good governance has always been a requirement from the regulator so you know, what have you got you, know, you, you will have a constitution yes. or a memo on arts and, and use the old language but you will have that in place now it may be that it's 10, 15 years old and you may need to look at it but at least you, you go through that as a first pass yes and say right now what are the bits we're going to need to do how are we going to do it in terms of timelines and who's going to get involved so yeah it is one of those things that you know the tendency is to we we, we leave it be and it becomes a big task so can you talk me through maybe an example of because one of the things sorry I should get ahead of myself is there's this thing about demonstrating compliance can you talk me what does what does that entail what's the required there in terms of demonstrating that you're compliant with a particular standard?
1: Yes, on uh, there is what's called a compliance report form. You have to fill that in internally. Now, you don't submit that form to the Charities Regulator. That's kept for internal purposes. The Charities Regulator may ask at some point to, to inspect that form, and that form includes both actions and evidence to demonstrate that you're compliant with core standards. So that may simply be very short. It, you're not writing uh, war and peace here. These can be very short narratives on what you're actually doing or what you have put in place it may well refer for example to policy documents that you have in place you've mentioned your constitution it may simply refer to the constitution or components of the constitution that help to satisfy some of the standards Uh, and then you may even include minutes of some of your board meetings so in some of the standards, you would simply need evidence to show that this was discussed and agreed at a, at a board meeting, and that would be sufficient. So you simply refer to the minutes of board meetings, and obviously you keep the minutes and uh, you have dated minutes of your board meetings, so they can be used as part of the evidence. Uh, very important, of course, to keep good minutes, uh, and not all minutes are as, as good as they should be. And I think there's probably a lesson in this for all boards and all trustees to ensure that whoever is taking the minutes are taking good accurate robust minutes of all of their board meetings but
0: maybe you might just walk through a particular example of you know a requirement in you know a standard you know but the board they need to consider its risks how would you go through that process to sort of say that to get to the stage, we're, we're complying with that requirement. Just maybe walk through the, what what, a, what a, a board should do in terms of the requirement is that they, they need to consider the risks facing their charity.
1: Yeah, I think I suppose that's an interesting one because it's only in recent years, I suppose, the the concept of risk has been raised as something that charities and charity boards should be thinking about. So you find it's a relatively new and new idea for uh, for boards and for trustees, and some of them are still trying to get their heads around. Well, what do we what do we understand? by risk and how do we manage that risk. So at a very minimum this is a conversation that has to happen at board meetings. Hopefully there is something with a bit more meat on the bone and that charities have already thought of a more formal process of Of understanding and managing risk. There are very uh, simple examples out there of how you would put a risk register in place, for example, and in fact the Charities Regulator has published a number of documents that help with putting those kind of elements together. There's a whole suite of support documents, by the way, that are attached to this code. Carmichael has been involved in, in developing these documents on behalf of the Charities Regulator. It gives very simple, straightforward, practical advice on the how-tos of the of the code. So it's worth looking at those. I,
0: I, I would echo that because sometimes the people is what I need to put in place, and and these guiding documents give you practical examples of what the requirement is. And using the example, there is a guidance on developing assessing risk and what a risk register might look like. So following through in that example, I would suggest when you look at that requirement, go to the, the website on the Charity Regulator and download the guidance on risk, have a discussion. And if you don't have a risk register in place, develop a risk register, have the discussion on the risk management policy. And then, as Derek would say then, when you've had that discussion and you've signed off in the risk register, you know, minute in your particular board meeting that the risk register was presented, it was reviewed, it was signed off, and that would be sort of your evidence that the sort of you'd have a copy of your risk register, but also that has shown that the, that the trustees or the board directors formally reviewed, considered, and approved it, and you have it in, in your, your minute. And there's a lot of that way by way of example of the standard is you will have maybe a document that you've prepared but that's part of the story the compliance but then has been considered by the trustees and that's where the minutes are very very important in in this evidence is that yes not only was it it was prepared by some staff member it didn't sit in a shelf or in the filing cabinet it was brought to the board it was updated it was reviewed and it was finally signed off and this was the date was. so if the regulator came knocking on your door and says, Carmichael, you've said that you've signed up to the governance code. It shows your risk register and shows where did this get approved by the board. That's when the the, the, the importance of having a good... Compliance record completed helps there. Um, I've also Just by the way,
1: Jeremy, before you go on, there is actually a guidance document on minute taking as part of that. And there is of, indeed, of and, and, so.
0: and I know that Carmichael quite a bit of good training in that area to support you know one of the one of the popular training courses. But minute taking is a very important skill set that boards need to, need need to have, and somebody that is, uh, takes on that responsibility needs to have a sense of what is the requirement of a secretary of a charity in terms of the minute-taking because now we've seen in the way, by way example, how important good minutes are if you have to say, God, we, we, we did discuss it, but when did we discuss it? And was it noted in the minutes? Because if it wasn't noted in the minutes, going back, you don't have the evidence that it was formally reviewed and, and, and things. So looking at minutes um, is rather than just a, a quick note of the meeting. They, they have a certain standing and they are part of your evidence base for your, your your charity so again if the poor person that has the responsibility and feels a bit rusty or unsure look at the guidance document but also there, there, there are other training available because those guideline documents um, that, that were prepared to support the charity code were written in the mind in plain language but also in the mind of the smaller charity in mind and and there's a further elaboration for for the more larger complex ones. so they're a very useful resource they're available they're not very very long in each each one you know two three pages in good practical uh, advice so i would I say is it, it'd be one of the things that you should do as part of your preparation is see what resources are available there's another one that is in there and I just is about the Code, code, code of Conduct of, of Trustees. How would they go about doing that, or what, what sort of things would you recommend in that?
1: Yeah, well, one of the requirements now of the Charities Governance Code is that the trustees have a Code of Conduct in place. And again, I suppose this has raised some eyebrows for some organisations that may not have thought of that or may not have actually seen that that would be a good thing to have in place. Uh, so again, it immediately begs the question. Well, what what would we include in that kind of a document? It's quite a it's quite a, a I suppose a broad uh, heading, but it is really asking the the board and and both collectively and individually as trustees to stand back and see. Okay, well, what are we signing up to here? And what, uh, what is our modus operandi as a board? How do we ensure that we are doing our best on behalf of the organisation and that we're not doing anything untoward or anything that might damage the organisation? So really, it's a very simple set of bullet points, but really, really important for... Uh, trustees to understand what's in their own code of conduct and to own it, I think that's really important it's not just something that you cut and paste from another source, it's actually something that you apply in your own organisation. I I
0: think that's a very important point that people shouldn't see the Charity Governance Code as a burden it is there to help run your charity better. We would in the course of our day-to-day work would come across charities that are having difficulties or problems one of the areas is a code of conduct where there may be actions or behaviors by taken by individual board trustees that is not appropriate or, or, you know, that if there had been a code of conduct developed and in place, discussed as I say, an awful tendency to cut download a template file it and say we have a code of conduct and it means nothing to the organisation because it's not discussed and it's not lived by you know, people are not calling out breaches of that code or bad behaviours or unacceptable behaviour because these things tend to escalate yes. and I think taking the mindset that the charity code, even though it might be thinking, it is there to help you run the charity better. And if you take it from that mindset and say, Okay, this is we will be much better running our charity much better at delivering what we on our purpose much better at attracting support whether they're from volunteers if we're a well-run charity and maybe so it is in your interests so if i would urge charities to take this as, as a, a positive thing to make sure are we doing the best we can and are we availing of the resources because there is a lot of resources a lot of help out there what would you think are the biggest pitfalls the most common pitfalls you've come across from charities in their approach to the governance code.
1: Yeah, I think we've probably learned from the voluntary code as well and we can see similar patterns beginning to to emerge with the charities governance code. I think time is uh, is one of the big pitfalls where people will just say, "Oh, look, we'll do that when the pressure is on to do it rather than we'll do it now when the pressure isn't so much evident." So I would really urge boards to actually start looking at the code uh, straight away. Don't leave it to such a point that there really won't be time to do it properly. I think it is very important. And it is time very well spent, as you've, as you've said. It's in, it's in the interest of the charity to actually apply the the governance code. It makes, it makes perfect sense to do what the code is asking you to do. Don't forget as well, I suppose, the compliance form actually has to be completed each year. So there's quite a lot of work in actually doing the compliance form the first time round because it's all new. Uh, But then each year subsequent to that, the form does need to be revisited and you do need to complete a new form each year. Now, it becomes easier, obviously, after the first year. But it does mean that the board is revisiting the code and complying with the code each year after the the initial year. So that's really important that the board understands that. The other thing, I suppose, the other pitfall is that uh, scenario where the board is either relinquishing it overtly or covertly to other people and saying to a manager or a staff member or some other third party, look, will you go off and do it for us? Well,
0: yes, I uh, smile there as you were saying that because we, we have got calls and people said, can you write the code for us, our, our compliance code? And we can certainly help, but we that is the wrong approach to take in terms of writing your code. Just before we wrap up, the, the, you might explain what the, the, the phrase, comply and explain, which is a feature of the code, in terms of, what does that mean? Yeah,
1: I mean, it is there is a principle of compliance or explain behind the code, which is which was also in the voluntary code. Now that's not a get out of jail clause. Sometimes people might think, okay, well that's great, we can do what we like, and we'll say this is what suits us. Really, what that's looking at practical issues for an organization where there may be particular prevailing circumstances in the organisation that dictate that there would be a different perspective on how a standard would apply in their organisation. I mean, a very obvious and simple one would be if you're being asked to uh, to address issues around staffing, for example, and you don't have any staff, well then clearly your explanation for not applying that standard is we don't have staff and we don't anticipate having staff. However, Next year or the year after, maybe you do take on staff. So then you'd have to take a different tack. But it's just a matter of making sure that the board itself, the trustees themselves, are satisfied that, from their point of view, they are happy that they have good, robust, solid governance in place that rises in principle to the to the requirements of the charities code.
0: That's excellent. And just to remind us, as we just as we conclude this thing on the charities, what are the key dates again that people need to bear in mind? Key
1: again I suppose 2019 is really the year of learning if you like this is the year that boards are being asked to to look at the code to familiarise themselves with the code and to ensure that they start the process 2020 is the year really to make sure that they motor along and and put their compliance in place and then in 2021 they will be asked to tick a box on their annual return to the charities regulator to say that they are compliant with with the code if 2021 goes by and they have not ticked that box and 2022 goes by and they have not ticked that box I would safely say in 2023 you'd be getting a call from the regulator to ask why you're not compliant at that stage Very so, good and
0: I will just remind you of that old in Irish which roughly means don't leave at the last minute so the day of the big wind isn't the day you should be touching your cottage so it is start the preparation 2019 is almost done. Uh, um, You still have a bit of time to do the the, the planning and the preparation and familiarisation task, assign responsibility for making it happen. Ownership remains with the trustee board and good luck. And as I say, lots of resources out there, either from the charity regulator or from Carmichael. Well, thank you for listening to our second episode in this new series of podcasts from Carmichael. This one was about... The Charities Governance Code, which is going to be a, applicable to all charities from 2020. So, if you'd like to find out more about our training and support services, have a look at our website CarmichaelIreland.ie and do give us a shout. I'm Bin curb Corbui, and my thanks to my colleague Derek O'Reilly. We'll be back soon. Slán gofol.